Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Uh, If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here. We're kicking off a new series today. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be walking toward Christmas together. But we're going to do it a little bit differently than normal. Um, For each of the next four weeks, we're going to be asking some pretty serious questions together. And our question for today is, where is God when it hurts? Where is God when it hurts? And if you're anything like me and you've asked that question before, then most of the time when we ask that question, where is God when it hurts? The question that we're really asking that's beneath that question is, like, man, this is hard. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Um, It was around this time of year, the date was December 17th, 1927, about 100 years ago, and there was a naval submarine called the S-4 that was running some exercises off the coast of Massachusetts. She had a crew of 42 men that day, and after making a submerged run, the S-4 came to the surface, but tragically, there was a nearby Coast Guard destroyer that didn't see the submarine, plowed right into the S-4, caused immense damage, the submarine immediately sank to the bottom of the sea. Once they realized what happened, rescue efforts began, but technology was insufficient. The weather was bad. They were having trouble with all the rescue attempts they tried. Meanwhile, down on the floor of the ocean, inside that submarine, 42 men were trapped, being slowly buried alive. And as they gradually ran out of oxygen, the men started to die, one by one, by one until eventually only six of them remained alive. The six remaining men sealed themselves in an isolated room toward the front part of the submarine and desperately waited for help when all of a sudden they heard some noises and miraculously divers had managed to locate the submarine. They're walking around on top of the sub. The guys trapped inside hear this. They start banging on the walls. The divers hear some faint tapping. They put their ears down to the submarine. Lo and behold, it's Morse code. And the guys inside the submarine begin to tap out that question, the desperate question that was plaguing their mind. Is there any hope? And the divers tapped back the answer, no. And all six men perished. During this next four weeks over this sermon series, we're gonna be walking through a pretty famous Bible story that begins in Bethlehem. And uh, you're probably used to Bible stories that begin in Bethlehem around this time of year, but this particular story takes place a thousand years before Jesus was born. And it's the story of a search for hope. It's the story of that question, is there any hope? If you've got your Bibles with me this morning, open them up to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is in the Old Testament, which is the beginning portion of your Bible. And the book of Ruth comes pretty early on. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua judges Ruth. Like, why is Joshua judging Ruth? That's how I remember that order. Joshua judges Ruth. Turn to the book of Ruth with me. And in Ruth chapter one today, we're asking this question, where is God when it hurts? But the question beneath that is, is there any hope? And here in Ruth chapter one, we're gonna see three particular scenes take place. And each one of those scenes explores that question, is there any hope, and peels back a deeper layer of the question. But here we are in scene one of Ruth chapter one, and here's question number one. Is there any hope when your dream 
dies. And some of you know what that feels like to have your dream die. The story begins like this. Ruth chapter one, verse one says, in the days when the judges ruled. That may not seem like much to you, but that's a really important opening line. We're in Israel in the days when the judges ruled. Well, what does that mean? In the book right before this, the book of Judges, it describes what life was like in Israel when the judges ruled. And if you've ever read through the book of Judges, it is rated R. Please do not tell me that reading the Bible is boring. Send a middle schooler to the book of Judges and you'll quickly find out that it's not. Judges describes like life in Israel. The problem was there was no king. And so this refrain all throughout the book of Judges is that every person did what was right in their own eyes. Israel's the Wild West, and so it's this time of perversion and violence and idolatry, and when a whole land goes into disobedience to God like that, it's not surprising what happens. Ruth chapter one, verse one goes on to say this. It says, so there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. Remember her, she's important. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, when you read your Bibles, it's important to remember people's names. Names in Scripture are important. It's not just a way of addressing someone. Your name tells us who you are. They mean something. So Naomi, for example, means pleasant. It means like sweetness or sunshine. It's a very happy name. Uh, The name of the town here, Bethlehem, Bethlehem means house of bread. Do you sense the irony? There's a famine in the house of bread. And we meet this guy also named Elimelech. And Elimelech, his name means Yahweh is king. The irony of that is Elimelech's name means God is king, but Elimelech lives like he's king because Elimelech does exactly what God has asked them not to do. Elimelech takes his family to Moab. And if you've ever read through much of the Old Testament, you probably recognize that Moab is a bad place. In fact, God explicitly said in his law to the Jews, he said, don't let your kids marry Moabites. They're bad news. And the reason is we, we, we see the history of Moab in Scripture. Moab was this nation that kind of started out of an incestuous relationship between a father and his daughter, and then as it only like gets worse as it goes on. And the people at Mo, of Moab are constantly at odds with the people of God. They're trying to curse the people of God, lie to the people of God, seduce the people of God, get the people of God to follow idols instead of having allegiance to God as their king. So all that to say, if you're trying to raise a godly family, you don't do it in Moab. But that's what Elimelech does. And so then we're not terribly surprised to see what happens next in verses three through five. It says, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, Uh uh-oh, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Is there any hope when your dream dies? Because imagine being Naomi here. You're Naomi, you're far away from your homeland, your husband died, now your two sons have died. That is a precarious position, especially for an old woman to be in in those days. And her hope, it seems like her hope has died. And if we even think about our English language, we have words for some of this kind of pain. Uh, A person who's lost their homeland is an alien. 
A wife who's lost her husband is a widow. A child who's lost their parents is an orphan. Have you noticed, though, that we have no name for a parent who's lost their child? Because that kind of grief seems to just violate the natural order of things, doesn't it? Maybe you know what it feels like to have that kind of pain. Is there any hope when your dream dies? Maybe you felt that, like you're, you're a few years in now, but your marriage hasn't turned out to be the fairy tale that you thought it was gonna be, or you keep trying and trying to have kids, and that's a good thing, but why, why isn't it happening? Or, or, or you lose your job, or, or, or your health fails you. Is there any hope when your dream dies? But that's just the first scene and the first layer, because now we come to the second scene of chapter one and the second, even deeper layer of the question. And the question this time is, is there any hope when God is against you, when God's against you, because Naomi has all this stuff happen to her. Her husband, her sons die. And remember, she's a Jew. She knows enough about God to know that God is sovereign. But that's not a particularly comforting reality for her. Take a look at what happens. It says that when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So the famine is over. They're going back to Bethlehem. And it says, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, oh, uh, never mind, go back, each of you, to your mother's home, and may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, oh, no, 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 we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I gonna have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters, I'm... I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Is there any hope when God is against you? Because in Naomi's mind, God is the cause of her suffering. Now we have to wrestle with this. Is, is that true? Is God against Naomi? Did God cause these things to happen to her? We have to take these questions honestly, even though they're not comfortable to talk about. And here's why. Uh, because several years back, there was a 13-year-old boy named Steve in church who stayed around until after the service, and he went up to the pastor. And he said, Pastor, does, does God know everything? The pastor said yes. And Steve said, so, so if I raise my finger, does God know what finger I'm going to raise before I even raise it? Now, Steve, 13-year-old Steve, he's a good kid. He cares. He believes. That's why he stuck around after church to talk to the pastor. And he said, so, so, so does God really know what finger I'm going to raise before I raise it? And the pastor said, well, yeah, he does. But... What was really on Steve's heart was that he was really burdened by the thought of all these kids who are starving in Africa. And so there's always a question beneath the question, you know. And Steve pulls out a copy of Life magazine with a cover photo of two starving, malnourished children. And Steve said, but what about this? Does God know about this? What's going to happen to them? And the pastor said, yeah, Steve, I know it's hard to understand, but God... 
God does know about that. And that answer, and that picture of God, it just didn't sit well with Steve. And so 13-year-old Steve, you know him, Steve Jobs, left church and never worshiped at a Christian church again. These are important questions for us to wrestle with. Did God cause all of this to happen to Naomi? Was God against her? Now, of course, we know the New Testament tells us that when we're in Christ, God is for us and not against us. But what about all the suffering that happens? We have to own the reality that this text hints here that God might have actually caused all these bad things to happen to Naomi because she and her family ran off to Moab instead of trusting him. Maybe. You know, Scripture tells us some various reasons for why these kinds of things happen, but what Scripture rarely does, almost never, does it give us the opportunity to point at a specific scenario and say, that's why that happened. Almost never does Scripture give us the opportunity to say, that over there, God caused that suffering, but God did not cause that suffering. And that suffering, you're just experiencing the consequences of your own sinful actions, but God, God caused that one. In that situation, that pain is just because we have a real and living devil, and that one is because we live in a fallen world and we have people with sinful hearts. But, but this pain here, God is testing your faith at this moment. We know all of these are potential answers for why these things happen, but very rarely does Scripture give us the opportunity to draw a one one-to-one correlation and know exactly why a given scenario is taking place. We just don't know. And so in the face of that, Naomi says that God is against her. And I mean, you, you put yourself in her shoes and, and you think, man, she's got no family to take care of her. She's up a creek. In, in fact, verse 12, take a look at what she says. She says, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Here's what's incredible about that. This right here is the first time that the word hope appears in the entire Bible. And yet it's in the context of Naomi saying, hope? Yeah, no, I've got none of that. So if we went and we asked Naomi our question today, is there any hope? She'd say no, because God is against me. And yet we know that's not the end of the story, right? The story goes on. And, and so they're, you know, on the road back to Bethlehem, Naomi changes her mind. She says, girls, go home. And here's what happens starting in verse 14. This is the famous part. It says, at this they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth, Ruth, clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What a promise. And so when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Like, men, make a mental note. When she's determined, stop bugging her, right? The Bible says so. <laughs> this is an incredible promise. That just at the moment where Ruth says, like, no, there is no hope, and God is against me. Here we have Ruth. And Ruth just won't let go. Now, if we're thinking in terms of conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom looking at this scenario says, Ruth, 
You're young, you're beautiful, you can still have kids. Ruth, go back to Moab, find another husband, start over. Conventional wisdom would say, Ruth, don't go to Israel because you're a Moabite. You'll be about as welcome there as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. (laughs) Ruth, hello? Ruth, why, don't, don't, leave your, don't leave your family. Ruth, don't leave your gods. Ruth, don't leave your native language. Ruth, don't leave your homeland. Ruth, don't leave all of that behind for some old woman who can't even take care of you, Ruth. And yet there's something deeper than conventional wisdom that is driving Ruth. It's something deeper than conventional wisdom that causes her to make that promise and utter those majestic words. Could we read it just one more time, the promise that she made to Naomi? It's incredible. Let's read it in the old King James. I just think it's beautiful. Ruth says, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. That is an amazing promise. In fact, verse 14 says, we read earlier, that Ruth clung to Naomi. She grabbed a hold of her. That word, to cling to, that's the same word that God uses in Genesis chapter two to describe a marriage, that a husband will be united to his wife. It's a kind of, I'm holding on to you, and I'm not letting go. We're in this thing for good. Man, so we've been talking about the last few weeks, our mission as a church is to help you become fully alive in Jesus. And that means that God made you to be with Jesus in community and on mission. So if you're gonna be fully alive in community, man, do you have those people in your life that you can cling to, those people who are gonna cling to you, those people who are gonna look you in the eyes and say, hey, listen, no matter what, ride or die, come hell or high water, I'm not going anywhere, I'm here, we're in this thing. Because you need that kind of a community. And that's the kind of community that we were made to be. Not just a here, there, and yonder when things get better, we'll go somewhere else. But a kind of sticking togetherness. Because the difference between Ruth and Naomi is, is Naomi said, Ruth, go back to your place. You take care of your problems. I'll go to my place and I'll take care of my problems. But that's not the kind of community that God made. Paul goes on to describe the kind of community we're supposed to be. He says that in the church, we're supposed to carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. That means that we're supposed to be a clinging together kind of place where where your problems become my problems and my joy becomes your joy and your hopes become my hopes and my burdens become your burdens because we're stuck together. We're in this thing. Do you have that kind of community? Because that kind of community, based on a commitment, that's what Ruth gave. And it's an amazing commitment that she makes. And here's what makes Ruth's commitment even more incredible. Because there's, there's a lot of people in Scripture who made great commitments when God told them to. Right? God calls Abraham and, and tells him and promises him he's, he's going to have a family. And, and God comes to Moses and says, go, go let my people go. And, and God comes to Joshua in the form of an angel. And, and Moses gets to follow the, the pillar of cloud and fire. But Ruth, Ruth got none of that. Ruth got none of that. She, she never talked to a prophet. She never heard from an angel. Never heard a voice from heaven. She never, you know, got some divine message. Ruth never got a miracle. There was no pillar of cloud, no pillar of fire, no burning bush, no parted water. We just have Ruth. 
And, and she's just a normal woman who's trying to do the best she can and make decisions and love the people around her and muddle her way through life to the best of her ability, a whole lot like you and I do. And, and this moment, for Ruth and Naomi, this is not just the binding of a friendship. This is Ruth's conversion. This is her saying, I'm gonna leave those gods behind and I'm gonna push all my chips to the middle of the table and your God will be my God. I mean, have you said that? Have you made that yours? Because think about it. You know, God promises Abraham, hey, you're gonna have a family. This thing's gonna be okay. I'm gonna take you to the land where you need to go. And God promises Joshua before he crosses the Jordan, hey, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make this land yours. Just, just trust me. But Ruth, Ruth had none of that assurance. The only thing that Ruth had was her mother-in-law. Just a bitter, grumpy old woman who couldn't benefit Ruth in any possible way. And yet Ruth still said, I'm gonna bet the farm on love for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health till death do us part. That's an amazing kind of commitment. But for Naomi, even that still didn't fix the problem. It didn't answer the question. And so now we move to the third scene here in chapter one and the third layer that we've, we've talked about. Hey, is, is there any hope when your dream dies? Is there any hope when God's against you? But the deepest layer of all is, is there any hope when you're alone? Because Naomi thinks that she's alone. You know, Naomi and Ruth, they end up traveling back to Bethlehem where, you know, the famine is over. The harvest is beginning. People in Bethlehem are happy. They're thinking, yeah, finally, God's blessing us again. The bad times are over. The good times are here. Let's celebrate. And Naomi's thinking, yeah, that's great for you, but that's not my story. Have you ever felt like that before? That everybody else seems to be doing great, except you. And maybe even over the last few weeks as we've talked about our mission, about being fully alive in Jesus, the life to the full that Jesus came to offer you with Jesus in community, on mission. Maybe you think, that's fantastic. I'm sure it works for other people, but that's not my experience. I bet that's what Naomi would say. I mean, if, if you asked her, she's, like, she's the opposite of all of those things. Naomi would say, fully alive? Me, I'm as good as dead. With Jesus? No, God, God's against me. In community? All my people are dead. I'm alone. On mission? My, my life doesn't have a purpose now. And that kind of pain, you know, you know what this does to us, right? It, it, it isolates her. So check out what happens here, starting in verse 19. They get back to Bethlehem. So, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Pause right there. Now remember we said names are important. You remember Naomi means like happy, pleasant, sunshine, that kind of thing. She says, no, that's, that's not who I am anymore. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. That's the turn my life has taken. And why has her life become bitter, she says? Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So this search for hope that Naomi's been on has been a journey from sweet 
to bitter, from full to empty, from Bethlehem to Moab and back again. Where are you on that continuum today? Maybe some of you are in a sweet season. But for some of you, when you think about your life right now, it brings a bitter taste to your mouth. Where are you on that continuum? Do you feel full today? you feel good? Or, or, or do you feel like you're running on empty? Because when you feel like you're empty, when you're in one of those seasons where, yeah, you're, you're a little bitter and you're a little tired, and maybe you've had that question in the back of your mind, thinking that God has been unkind to you, then sometimes in those seasons of suffering, your mind can play tricks on you. Because human logic cannot withstand the weight of our own pain and so that's what it does for Naomi. Like for a lot of us, when we're hurting, we don't see ourselves or our lives quite clearly. And that's what happened to Naomi. Naomi says to these two women who've just lost their husbands, she says, no, my life is harder than yours, Ruth and Orpah. No, my dream has dead. God, God's against me. I'm all alone. Woe is me. And yet the whole time that she's lamenting all of that, who's standing right next to her? Who's still clinging to her? Ruth is right there the whole time. She wasn't alone. And, and so maybe if you're in one of those seasons where you're hurting today, if you would allow me to just ever so gently suggest that maybe, just maybe, you have more potential for hope than you know. Let's go back to our question. Is there any hope? If we're gonna talk about hope, we have to know what hope is. Hope is the combination of two key elements, wanting and believing. Wanting and believing, like wanting something to happen and then believing that you actually have the ability for that thing to happen. Wanting and believing. And if you lose either of those two elements, if either wanting or believing get out of whack, then hope disappears. For example, if you have high want but low belief, that's called despair. I really want to be married but, you know, life's kind of passing me by. I'm getting older now. There's not really any prospects. I don't actually believe that it's going to happen. That's despair. Um, we also have low want and low belief, and that's called resignation. Now, resignation is not actually an all-bad thing. It's actually a pretty good way to deal with some of our smaller hopes so that they don't drive us into a dark place. For example, I would really love to be able to dunk a basketball. I think it'd be awesome. I'm really jealous of those of you who can. I'm also self-aware enough to know I'm lazy, so I don't really want to do leg day. And I'm five foot eight, and I'm uncoordinated, and so I have resigned myself to the fact that I'm never going to be Spud Webb. It's just not going to happen, and so I'm okay with that. Low want, low belief. The opposite of that, then, is high want and high belief, and that's where hope comes in. A lot of wanting and a lot of believing. And here's the good news about that high want, high belief kind of hope. You're actually born with it. It's yours to lose. Psychologists tell us that, that as babies, we're born with what's called a pre-reflective optimism. That means that you know what you want and that you actually believe that you deserve to get it and will get it. That's why a baby cries, right? A baby cries because that baby knows what it wants and believes that it's gonna get what it wants. You're born just naturally wanting and believing these things. And even as you age a little bit, that kind of sticks with you. That's why kids at this time of the year will come up to you and say, Mommy, can I have a unicorn for Christmas? Right? High want, high belief. It's a pre-reflective optimism. And yet, 
Eventually, as we grow up, what happens? We get disappointed, right? We don't get a unicorn for Christmas. And so to deal with that disappointment, our pre-reflective optimism starts to wear off and we become realists or curmudgeons as they're called, right? And so in order to handle the disappointment, we, we downgrade our desires, we throttle our wants, we temper our beliefs. And to deal with this disappointed expectations that we've had, we just resign ourselves to the fact that, you know, I'll... I'll admit, I'll I'll never own that. I'll never live there. I'll never look like him. I'll never marry her. I'll, I'll never do that. And our hope fades. So the question then is, after life, dulls the redemptive edge of our pre reflective optimism, how do we recover our hope? Because we're not kids anymore, right? We've grown up now, so we can't just go back to wanting a unicorn for Christmas because we've been hurt enough and we've grown up, to, up, to know, up enough to know that hope has to have a reason. If hope doesn't have a reason, it's just naive optimism. It's just speculation. Hope has to have an actual reason. Peter even says that. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says that you should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. If we're going to have hope, there has to be an actual reason for it. So how do we restore hope? Is there any actual reason to restore hope, or are we just playing church games here? Is this just some kind of a pep talk? May 23rd, 1939, there was another submarine, the USS Squalus. This was a little over a decade after the sinking of the S-4. And the Squalus had a crew of 59 men that day, was beginning a test dive in the Atlantic, though immediately as they submerged, though, water started to flow into the submarine from a hatch that had uh, unfortunately been left open, and uh, the subs immediately just started taking on water, sank, and 26 men drowned just almost instantly as the water came in. But just like with the sinking of the S-4, a few men remained alive, and they managed to seal themselves off, and as that submarine, the S-4, settled on the ocean floor, those 33 men sealed themselves into an isolated compartment and they began to play that horrifying waiting game with that question that you know was lingering in the back of their minds. Is there any reason for hope? They launched rockets to the surface and got the attention of a nearby nearby naval ship who noticed their predicament. The rescue efforts began. They began to send divers down to the boat and again the divers go down. They find the submarine and they start hearing this noise. They heard this tapping. They put their ears down to the submarine and it's the trapped men inside and they're tapping again with Morse code and they ask the exact same question. Is there any hope? And this time... The answer came back, yes. And, and the reason for the hope was that even though it had never been used before, the divers brought down a brand new device that had been developed after the sinking of the S-4. And this diving bell, it was slow and untested and risky, but after over 40 hours of making trips to the surface and back, all 33 survivors were rescued. Is there a reason for hope? Yes, Naomi, yes. 
One of the interesting things about the book of Ruth, I hope you'll go read it this month. It's incredible, and there's a whole lot we won't be able to get into. But one of the beautiful little details is that throughout this story, God is mentioned offhand in conversation several different times, but the narrator of the story never mentions God, not even once. And that's because the book of Ruth is a story about how God is at work behind the scenes in your life, ever so quietly, even when you don't even know he's there. But if you have your spiritual antenna up, you get little hints of it. Even here at the end of the chapter, the chapter ends in verse 22 by saying this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Can you hear it in that verse? There's just, just a glimmer Maybe some hope. Maybe, just maybe, the famine might be over. Maybe, just maybe, Ruth, Naomi. Oh, Naomi, don't give up. I know you feel like your dream has died and that God is against you and that you're alone and you wonder if there's a reason for hope, but Naomi, this is only chapter one and the harvest is just beginning. It's a hint of what God is doing that maybe after all, there is a reason for hope. And so here's the reason for hope for Naomi and for you and me. Just one little word. Chesed. Chesed. It's a Hebrew word. You kind of got to get some phlegm in your throat or you're not doing it right. You know, you're, you know say it with me. Here we go. Chesed. Like, <clears throat> you know, you can feel it, right? <laughs> and chesed is a Hebrew word for an the Old Testament word for, for a relational kind of love. It's a promise-based love. It's the kind of love that exists inside of a covenant. It's a steadfast love. It's loyal love. It's loving kindness. It's a love that will never get up on you, give up on you. Chesed is the word that God uses to describe his own love. When you read through the Old Testament and you hear about how the steadfast love of the Lord, chesed, abounds. That's the word right there. And chesed is the love love that Ruth showed to Naomi. The word shows up over and over and over again all throughout the book. It's the theme word of the whole story, the love of a relational promise. One of the great heroes of history, you know, is, is Winston Churchill, who led England through World War II as their prime minister. Many of you are familiar with his story. And for a whole year there during the war, England stood alone against Nazi Germany. Because Austria and Poland and Belgium and Holland and Norway and France had all fallen to Hitler. And meanwhile, the United States was in the grip of a really strong isolationist movement called America First. And so the U.S. had not yet entered into the war. And so for a full year, it was just Churchill versus Hitler for the fate of the world. And in the face of impossible, overwhelming odds, Churchill's brilliance was that he gave England a reason for hope. Because over and over and over again, he told the people that Hitler could actually be defeated, even though it didn't look like it. And he said that if not, better to die choking on our own blood than to give in. High want, high belief. But as time wore on, it became quickly apparent that England was not going to be able to win this war on their own. And so across the ocean in the United States, 
President Franklin Delano Roosevelt sent his closest advisor and his most trusted confidant on a visit to Britain. He was a tiny little man named Harry Hopkins. And during this visit, that they were there for several days, Winston Churchill turned all of his considerable powers of persuasion and he aimed them squarely at Harry Hopkins because he was desperate for America to enter the war. And the trip goes on for several days, and Hopkins and Churchill are together. But toward the end of the trip, they concluded the journey with this great banquet in Scotland. And at the end of the meal, Harry Hopkins turns to Winston Churchill. And he says, I suppose you should like to know what I will tell the president when I return. Uh, yeah, right? Like... <laughs> I mean, this is the climactic moment that Churchill has been waiting for. The fate of world civilization hangs in the balance. Everybody is holding their breath. Would America choose to join hands with Great Britain and to enter the fray and to bleed and to sweat and to die together? Or would the United States just turn her back safe on her own continent to deal with her own problems and allow the rest of the world to fall into genocide and tyranny? Would there be any reason for hope? And Harry Hopkins looked at Winston Churchill and he said, when I return, I will quote the president one verse from the book of books under the truth of which my own Scottish mother was raised. And then his voice dropped to a whisper and Hopkins said, whither thou goest, I will go. And whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and evermore so, if aught but death part thee from me. And Winston Churchill, the great Lion of England, wept like a baby. Because everybody knew what that meant. It was, it was a rope thrown to a drowning man. There was a reason now for hope. And the reason for their hope was chesed. It was the love of a promise, a relational promise that no matter what, we're sticking together. But of course, you and I, we get to experience little bits of this in our very best earthly relationships. And yet even the deepest chesed that we experience in this life is only a shadow of the ultimate steadfast covenantal chesed love of God over and over and over and over again. That word is how God chooses to describe his love for us. That it's a steadfast love, that it's loving kindness, that it's a, it's a never changing kind of love. It's a from generation to generation kind of love. It's an everlasting kind of love. It's the kind of love that's never going to let you go. And we see echoes of it in this story. Because after all, where did we wind up? We're in Bethlehem. And so we can't help but be reminded of another young woman in Bethlehem who didn't have a husband. And God gave her a baby. And that baby was nothing less than the son of God himself. And they named him Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And he spent his 33 years walking the dusty roads of this planet to display the covenant faithfulness, the chesed, steadfast love of God that he came all the way from heaven just so that he could show us that he wouldn't let us go. 
And that he was faithful both to his end of the covenant and to ours by going all the way to the cross to die for us, to display the steadfast love of God. And he rose again today to new life to show us that nothing, not sin, nor death, nor the powers of hell could separate us from his love. That chesed, that is the reason for our hope today. And so we're going to, yeah, we'll we'll get to see how the rest of this story unfolds over the next three weeks, and it's a beautiful story. But for you today, when you feel like your dream has died, and you wonder if God is against you, and it seems like you're alone, and that doubt creeps into the back of your mind, is there actually a reason for hope? The steadfast chesed love of God shown in the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus Christ for you and for me. That love, where you go, he will go. And where you stay, he will stay. And your people are his people. And your heart is safe in his heart. And so in Christ now, nothing, not even death, can separate you from him. So where is God when it hurts? He's right here. We celebrate that by receiving communion every week. And and the Bible describes communion, it, it does a lot of different things, but... But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells the story of how Jesus, on the last night of his life, before he went to the cross to display the steadfast love of God in its fullness, at that last meal, he passed around a piece of bread, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we remember his body on the cross. But but then when he passed the cup around, He did not just say, this is my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant. That this is the promise. This is the chesed, the steadfast love of God that will not let you go. And you may fail him, but he will not fail you. And so we receive this every single week. I'm gonna give you a few moments to just be with the Lord on your own and prepare to receive that bread in remembrance of him. And would you thank him? Would you thank him? that he has always been faithful and he always will be. And then we'll receive the cup to celebrate the promise together. Father and our King, life is swirling around us so fast and everything's changing all the time. And I change. Man, Lord, we we change our minds and we have good days and we have bad days and we go up and down and all around. 
And so we thank you that you remain the same. Yesterday, today, and forever, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. And you know the doubts we have, Lord, and you know the pain we carry. You know, you know the dreams we have that we don't know if will ever happen. You know that sometimes we wonder if you're for us or against us and we don't understand what you're doing and, and that a lot of the time we feel alone. And so my prayer here for my brothers and sisters today is that this, just the simple receiving of your body and your blood again would instill ever so deeply in our hearts the beautiful truth that now because of Jesus, neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from your chesed love in Christ Jesus our Lord. And for that, all God's people said, amen. This is the blood of Christ. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.